I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King Culture Podcast. I'm Luke. I'm here with Seth. Seth, how are you today? Doing pretty good. I'm basically recovered from the stomach flu. Been quite a ride. Dude, it was like every day I would text you and go, are you feeling better? Nope. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I haven't heard of you being that sick maybe ever. Yeah, it's definitely the sickest I've been since I've been married. Like it kept feeling like, usually if I get sick, it's like 24 to 36 hours, but it was like five days of slonging out on the couch with my son Jay. So at least I wasn't alone. Yeah. Well, and I know when you're a preacher, you just hope that you get sick during the week. You, you don't want it to hit the weekend because you had been preaching one weekend down in Tucson and then the next weekend up in Flagstaff. And in between, you got a nice stomach flu. So. I got a nice stomach flu. But you were able to preach still. So Yeah. I, I was going to spend the weekend in Flagstaff. I ended up just driving up Sunday morning, Okay, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, dropped 12 pounds. So <laughs> ready for summer, baby. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, uh, one of the things we try to do in this podcast, I mean, not really one of the things, kind of the thing we try to do, as we said, is critique the hell out of culture. And just for those of you who are newer with us, essentially what that means is we just see hellish elements, heavenly elements in the culture, in the society, in people around us, and in ourselves. And so what we're trying to do is identify what are the areas that are not really in line with God's story, not really in line with the Bible, not really in line with who God made us to be, and see if we can evaluate those and assess those with the hopes that we become more like God called us to be. So that's what we're trying to do in this. And so today, Seth, uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about intimacy. And by intimacy, I mean the connection uh, that's the product of knowing. Okay. Uh, to, so there's like probably three horizons here that we can talk about. There's my ability to know and like be connected to myself. Okay. Uh, so rather than like, there's you know someone who lacks self-awareness. Mm-hmm. You'd say like there's who they are, then there's who they think they are or how they think they are. There's okay. a gap there. And so the more self-aware someone is, the more uh, connected they are to themselves, the more like in touch they are. Okay. Um, intimacy, uh, connection, self-knowledge, like knowing how you're feeling, knowing how you're doing, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, knowing your gifts. There's like that direction. Then there's intimacy with God. There's okay. the ability to be connected to, intimate with, a mutual knowledge there. There's intimacy with other people. and So that's a third horizon. That's a third horizon. Okay. And that takes a, a broad variety of forms, right? There's, uh, you know, like, even like we talk about, if someone's been intimate with someone, that's usually a euphemism for they had sex. Right. Uh, but there's varying degrees of intimacy. And so... And you're not limiting it to the sexual intimacy, but it yeah. obviously would include that, but, but not only that. Yeah, there's obviously inappropriate intimacy that could happen between so-called friends, but there's an appropriate intimacy, like self-disclosure, uh, uh, knowledge of another person, like to know someone's heart, to know their values, their hopes, their fears, concerns. That's a form of intimacy. And I think that one of the things our culture is pretty bad at is intimacy. Like, I think we don't know ourselves, we don't know God, uh, we don't know others, and so we basically form tribes around affinity groups because I don't know myself, and so I can't let you know me if I can't know me. And so we have to, like, go watch sports together, mm, or yeah. we have to go just be mad about politics together. And so we, we rally around basically affinity or, like, mindedness things, not really based on the quality of us. Yeah, There's um, 
this Jewish family systems theorist named Edwin Friedman. He mm-hmm. wrote a couple of books. One's called Generation Generation. One's called A Failure of Nerve. And I think they're... I am just waiting for someone to please write a version of Failure of Nerve that I could understand. Yeah. I've taken so many runs at that book. I feel like I understand it because I've heard you talk a lot about it. I've heard Steve Cuss, who uh, does a podcast managing leadership anxiety. I've heard him talk about it. But I just think like, man, I think I'm a smart person until I try to read that book. It's, and I go, gosh, I just can't get it. I don't, I don't think it's an intelligence thing. Just look, oh. I, I think there's well, like, thanks. I think there's like a, a, a personality intuitive gut thing. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have that. Like, Whatever first, that is, that's missing when it comes I, to that I book. think it's a way of looking at relationships. Like I read it and I was like, I feel like this explained everything to me uh-huh. and like it gave language to all my, well, that's how all the people that love that book think about it, which yeah. is why it's like so frustrating to go like, I don't get it. But it's ma- like the first time I watched the matrix. Yeah. I'm like, I've heard this movie's awesome, but I don't get it. Yeah. So anyway, here's the, here's anyway. the, here's the free Sorry. quote. Yeah. He, he'd say that the measure of a quality, like the, the quality measure for relationships. So dis- like is how long two people can talk to each other without talking about another person. Huh, that's interesting. It's like, how long can Luke and Seth sit here and talk about Luke and Seth without talking about and Molly and Taylor and our other friend and our work and just like us? Interesting. So he's like, that's the measure of the quality of of intimacy is how long two people can talk to each other about each other without talking about some other person. So to be clear, he's saying the quality or the the degree of intimacy, would that be a better way to say it? Like, because I would go like, there's, if you go like the, the um how good a relationship is is measured by that well i don't want every relationship to be that yeah right so i'd go like well okay that's it doesn't mean it's a the relationships i don't want to have that level of intimacy are bad they're just different but he's talking about the yeah they made the quality of intimacy okay yeah and he's not saying that that's all relationships should be yeah but he's saying like his test case would be all right luke and seth sit here talk to each other about only each other and if you get to about four minutes and then it starts feeling awkward and squeamy mm-hmm. and you're like, mm, Kevin Durant or, mm, <laughs> you know, Matthew yeah. Rattleton, you know, and it's like yeah. you, you have to break out. Like he calls that triangulation. It okay. means like when there's instability in us or between us, we look for that third factor that's going to um, sure us up a bit. And so if you think about like intimacy in those terms, like yeah. how, how much I can meaningfully self-disclose and you can stay interested and be connected or how well I can ask questions to you about you drawing you out mm-hmm. and how long I can stay engaged there. And how, and how capable I would be of answering questions about yeah, me. Yeah, that requires two uh, part like participants yeah. who are to some degree self-aware, to some degree interested, to some degree invested. And so the two of us going back and forth and it's, that's, so that Friedman, the, the quality of intimacy relationship is measured based on how too long two people can talk without talking about a third person. There's like that factor there. And there's this other factor that I have in my mind, uh, Eugene Peterson. So basically like if someone wants to understand me, they could read Friedman and Peterson and understand my. Uh, yeah, I mean, so after seminary, you took a whole year and read everything written by Eugene Peterson. Yeah, I just started his books and went just, one what, by 20 one. some, 30 some books? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. But he has this line in one of his books where he says, you know, psychotherapists call people into their office and ask them about their sex life because 
they think that in investigating someone's sexual life, they will learn how they handle intimacy. Okay. You know, how were you taught intimacy? So your early sexual memories, how did you practice intimacy? You know, either like through adolescence or in early marriage, how have you violated intimacy? How have you failed to be intimate? How have you maintained it? To be clear there, is he talking like they'll do that primarily to about sexual intimacy? I mean, they'll explore sexual intimacy to understand your, your ability for sexual intimacy, or they'll, explore sexual intimacy to understand your ability for overall relational intimacy. Yeah. So he, his argument was that the psychotherapist asks about sexual intimacy because, uh, sex is what's most private about you. Okay. You know, it's the, the parts your every bathing suit in the world covers, you know, it's, it's not your belly button. It's the part that all the bathing suits cover. Right. right? And sure. it's, it's what's most, uh, uh, guarded. It's what's considered most precious. It's the thing that you reserve for that space. It's the thing that when taken from you hurts the most. It's the thing that, yeah. you know, and so it's, there's something about most private, most intimate, most uh, special could be a term that how you handle the most valuable part of your intimacy tends to spill out into how you handle the rest of your intimacy. Okay. So either like hyper vulnerability um, or inability to be vulnerable or those various spaces. And so I keep pressing in on that because I just think there is this tendency to collapse intimacy to sexual intimacy. Yeah. And we're trying to say, no, it's more, it's broader than that. Yeah. It it includes it for sure, but it is broader. And I just want to throughout this conversation, especially when someone is talking about sexual intimacy, yeah, try to slice it apart a little bit and go, what exactly are we talking about? So I think what Peterson's getting at is psychotherapists ask about sex because uh, sex is kind of like it's emblematic. Yeah, it's the part of the iceberg that's above the wa- above the water. Okay, you know, emotional intimacy, financial intimacy, uh, relational intimacy, uh, all these other forms of known and being known, kind of all meet at this above the water sexual yeah. intimacy thing. Okay, um, in terms of like pain points, pleasure points, uh, what's going well, what's going poorly, you can look at your handling of sex and it's supposed to be emblematic of that. And Peterson said, I don't do that. When people come into my office for counseling, I don't ask them about their sex life. I ask them about their prayer life and I can find out the exact same thing. Huh? Wow. Okay. So he's saying the Freudian, the psychotherapist world, they see what's above the line. What's visible above the water is sex. Like how you handle your sexual intimacy is emblematic of how you handle all your intimacy. And Peterson's not necessarily saying they're wrong. He's saying, I can find out the same stuff by asking people about their prayer lives. Mm, Sure. Because he's saying what's actually most private, what's most personal, what's most uh, unseen by the public is your prayer life, Mm. is the capacity not to connect sexually with someone else, but to connect spiritually with the Holy Spirit who indwells you and is connected to you. Well, I think even, even today where there is in some places, you know, much more cavalier approach to sex, right? It, you know, there's a lot of folks that don't view sex anymore as like something of great intimacy. It's just, Hey, this is something we do with our bodies. Yeah. And we could argue about why that's incorrect, but even the, you know, the prayer question, the, how do you relate to God cuts through the, whatever your approach to sexuality is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that question about sexuality might have been fair when Eugene Pearson was writing in the 70s, sure. you know, but uh-huh. now sex is like shaking hands to secular ethicists. Right. You know, it's just two bodies touching, big deal. And you might get a little sweat on your palms and trade, you know, but... 
don't write home about it. You know, it's non, it's a non deal. And so at least Peterson was writing in a time before like the Lady Gaga era, you know, you can, you can't have my heart, you can't have my mind, but do what you want with my body. Right. So nowadays, especially from like a secular humanist point of view, you're not going to learn a ton about someone by asking about their sex because that's like asking them like, how like, uh, how many people's hands have you shaken? You know, it's like, who keeps track of that? That's ridiculous, you know? Uh, so he's saying, ask about prayer life. And so, because your capacity to handle intimacy, uh, quiet spaces, unknown spaces. And if you think about freedmen, the quality of intimacy has to do with how long two people can talk to each other before talking about someone else. Then you apply that to our prayer lives mm. and you feel very roasted, or at least I do. How long can I talk to the Lord about me and him and nobody else before I start talking about somebody else mm. or something else or somewhere else? And all of a sudden, I start to feel like maybe the quality of my intimacy with the Lord is not that great. Mm. And how long can I actually sit here and maintain eye contact with God, metaphorically, obviously, hopefully, <laughs> right. um, and be attuned and attentive and connected to and aware of his presence? Before I think, you know, squirrel or uh, what, what what I've gone on later. and Yeah, or even before I just move into interceding for others. Yeah. like the, What pops in my head as you say that is like the people who are just faithful and diligent and, you know, consistently praying for other people. But then if uh, if they pray for themselves, they'll say, well, Lord, I, I, you know, I'm being selfish right now, but I just want to ask you to give me joy. And it's like, well, why is that selfish? Right, but there is this sense of going... Lord, I feel totally comfortable coming to you to triangulate on behalf of others. But Lord, if I have to look you in the eye and go, here's what I want, I suddenly it's uncomfortable. Yeah, like the first question in John, when Jesus asked, like, what are you seeking? What do you want? And Jesus still asks us that question, like, what are you seeking? What do you want? And we go like, I'm not sure, but God help Luke with, uh, you know, his stuff he knows, you know, and help help Olivia sleep through the night and Oh, yeah, yeah and, and to be clear, we're not saying it's wrong to intercede on behalf of others. Yeah, we are saying if if that's your only muscle you can flex in prayer, then it's it's maybe indicative of something. I guess it, is what Peter's yeah, saying. Yeah, absolutely. Just like it's not wrong for you and I as coworkers to talk about our work and to sure. part and to partner in our jobs. Yeah. Uh, but if I mostly view myself as like partner in ministry with God and not like lover of God, beloved by God, someone who's enjoying intimacy, like if I'm bride of christ and he's groom and if all we do is talk about the kids like that's not yeah. a, a deep intimate quality connected relationship and so it's just like if all taylor and i did was talk about our kids it's like well we had a marriage first right, right. before sure. we and it's it's same with us in christ and you know, we have a marriage first and a ministry second right again we got like the, the cultivation of the intimacy and so with with that friedman measure with that peterson assessment I then think about um, my professor at seminary, Steve Tracy, who he shared this comment. This is what in my, I'd take two sexual ethics or se- practice of sexual wholeness classes at Phoenix Seminary okay. with him, which are really good. And he talked about how like the biggest complaint you get from uh, women about their sex lives, married women about their sex lives is the duration, how, how long the sex lasts. And the biggest complaint you get from married men about their sex life is frequency, how often they have sex. And it made me immediately go like, I'm kind of super connecting all these dots here. Yeah. So of course, those are generalizations. It's probably important to say that. Yeah. It's not this in every case. But that's what Steve Tracy, 
professor of these sexual ethics classes is saying, hey, generally speaking, yeah. here's what I've observed. Yeah, and the generally speaking is usually like code for like 70 or more percent of yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, and he's not saying right. if that's not your main complaint, sure, what's wrong with you? But it's just saying generally speaking, there's these two big complaints. And so the gender nature of these complaints is less is not is not relevant at all to this conversation. But the two biggest complaints: frequency, duration. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also in this other class at the same time taking like prayer class. Mm. It's like how to pray. I think it was supposed to be the first class you take in seminary, um, but for scheduling reasons, I took it as my second to last class in seminary. Okay. And the professor, not knowing what Steve Tracy is talking about, makes this comment like, man, we, we feel shame when we can't pray for a long time. And we feel shame about how often we don't pray. So it's like, we don't pray enough, and when we do pray, it doesn't last very long. Yeah. Like, that sounds like sure. sexual complaints in marriage, you know, frequency, duration, how often we play, how long we pray for. And... Uh, how the measure of intimacy being how long can the two of us be connected before breaking off into some other thing. And, and that's, that's like created like a whole like stream of consciousness in my mind on intimacy, which is how connected all of this is in the way that uh, frequency and duration in our prayer lives, frequency and duration in our sex lives are the two people's capacity to, to be with each other before introducing some third variable to like add stability to it. And it, it, it's not surprising that God made us these integrated people who handle intimacy in a variety of spaces and places in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's largely connected to self-knowledge, how we know ourselves, how we see ourselves, our stories, um, our capacity to connect intimately with other humans, not necessarily even like our spouses sexually, but even just to be emotionally vulnerable, to let yourself be known to the point in which you're risking rejection. I don't feel like until there's an element of risk and disclosure, you're not truly being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And also our capacity, our capacity to like be with God. Uh, and so this is kind of like coming to like a, what I would say is a bit of a, a focal point for me. And another thing that Eugene Peterson talks about is he says like in the Sabbath, uh, there are these two big elements, which is praying and playing. Yep. You know, it's enjoying God's creation and it's enjoying God. And I think that personally, I people ask me, do you use Sabbath well? And almost always it's like, oh, yeah. And what I mean by that is I turn off the work switch pretty easy. I don't anxiously think about my sermon Friday night, Saturday night before I preach it. Uh, I have pretty good boundaries with work. Uh, I can get out in creation and play with my kids pretty well. Mm-hmm. But if, if Sabbath is about playing or just not working then I give myself a 9 out of 10 score. But if Sabbath is about enjoying God in prayer, that frequency and duration of space, then I'm like, I'm much more in the D minus F category. Okay, yeah. Intimacy. Like, So if Sabbath means not working, then I'm good at it. If Sabbath means playing and praying, then I'm like, maybe I'm not that good at it. Mm. Especially as I have a sabbatical coming up, I mm-hmm. think like, I feel pretty confident I'm going to check out from work pretty <laughs> yeah. easily. Yeah, sure. I'm not, I'm not like, will I be able to turn my brain off? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to. Mm-hmm. But will I come back more intimately connected with God in a place where the two of us, Jesus and me, can have 
longer stretches of uninterrupted time before I like, like flinch to something else. Well, and because of the nature of pastoral ministry, I think that's, that's one of the real blessings to me of, of a sabbatical is it reveals to you how much of your relationship with God is triangulated with your ministry. Yeah. You and know? I, and, and so like, even when people go, well, why do pastors need sabbaticals? I go, I don't know if they need them, but it sure is helpful because when your work and your relationship with God and your community is all integrated, it is hard to know like, well, where does my relationship with God begin and end? And where is it actually just me triangulating all these other things with him? Yeah. When I'm, when I'm preaching on a regular basis, there's like this weird, like I have a moment with God and a quiet time in the morning and I have a moment with him. And then four seconds later, I think that will work. <laughs> right. Meaning like I could share this with people uh-huh. and it would help them. Right. So to have a few months of like no outlet. No for outlet that. for that. Yeah. And to go like, how much is this? How much of Like, I don't, it's hard for me to think, ask, answer the question. How much am I using my intimacy with God to try to help others have intimacy with God versus just enjoying it myself? Yeah. And right now I'm like, I'm not totally sure because there's always a sermon coming up usually in the next at the longest time, like I have have some teaching thing coming up soon. Uh, yeah. 12 days, you know, that's right. like a long stretch um, and long enough where it's not like some future, whatever point. And so the ability to be intimate with God in prayer and to be known by others through self-disclosure. And so that's some of what I'm thinking about heading towards sabbatical, thinking through it is how connected am I with myself? Like right now people ask like, what do you want? And I, and I mostly feel annoyed at that question. <laughs> sure. Because I feel like, I didn't, like, well, what needs to be done? You know, and, yeah. and, and the question matters, first of all, because Christ asks it. So that's a good reason to think something that matters. But also, like, feeling kind of cut off from that. I'm not totally sure how, how to tell Jesus that. Yeah. Um, so m- maybe to, to begin to move toward the end here. So a lot of this has been pretty diagnostic. Yeah. Right? This is like going, hey, you can consider what is what does all this help reveal to me about my prayer life or about my you know relational life with other people close to me or whatever is there any kind of like if people are going man yeah you're like (laughs) this whole thing's really hitting home to me like yeah I don't know how to connect to myself and I don't really know how to connect to others without there being a third thing to connect us and I don't really know how to connect with God in these ways like are there any kind of beginner places that you'd go, hey, start with this, consider that. Um, I mean, these things take a long time to develop, right? Intimacy, I think by design, is intended to take a long time to really yeah. form. Yeah. So I, I don't want, if someone's listening and go like, man, holy cow, everything for me is a D minus in this whole yeah. thing. It's not like, well, how do I make it an A? It's like, how do I start moving it from a D minus to a D, right? Where, where do I begin? Do you have any suggestions there? Yeah, I think the first thing that has to happen. So I, I think part of the reason our culture is so bad at intimacy is we're the most stimulated population in the history of the world. I don't mean that just sexually. I mean like podcasts, YouTube, Netflix, music. You know, like you think yeah. there was no music on the radio, much less streaming songs on demand. Like that is a very recent phenomenon yeah. sure. historically. Like you'd have to go get a record player if you were semi wealthy to be able to hear, like or like before even that you had to find a violinist to come <laughs> and play music like you sure like people just didn't 
have input, input, input chronically. And I'm not just critiquing the last 15 years, iPhones, I'm like the last 150 years. Like our degree of input is skyrocketed. And so I think the discipline of silence and solitude is more important than it's ever been uh, in the history of the human race. And Jesus gave a lot of time to that in 2,000 years ago. And so I think some substantial time to sit with yourself, be with yourself, be alone, to be with God. And usually it looks like in nature, uh, in creation, it's probably better than nature, but not attempt, like where other minds aren't affecting your mind. Yeah. And uh, a simple journal where you're not just, I don't like doing free form journaling because I end up like performing for myself and thinking like, how is that phrase, you know? And mm-hmm. But where you're just writing down stuff that you're, God is sifting through and noticing about yourself. Like you're not just a uh, stream of consciousnessing, but you're writing down insights, uh, reflecting, capturing reflections. I would start there and right at the top of the question, like from John chapter one, when Jesus says like, what are you seeking? What do you want? And try to get in touch with yourself and write down the stuff that you want that you maybe think you shouldn't want, write down the stuff that you want that you think you maybe should want and uh, begin there trying to know yourself um, by yourself with the Lord. And I think that if you've been hyperstimulated for your whole life, which if you're my age, you have been, mm-hmm. uh, if you're younger than me, you've been an insane even more time, like just 40 minutes by yourself without some type of external input of music or whatever will feel painful and weird. And I think that that's um, a, a discipline that grows mm. is that silence, solitude, awareness. Uh, the second f- phase of that is, I think, practicing sharing those reflections with another person. And it feels weird uh, to go, here's what God revealed to me in my time of prayer, or here's what I revealed to myself in time of prayer or time of silence. I'm never totally exactly sure how that works. And say, and because you share it with someone and there's like this feeling of like, this is going to feel stupid and it's going to feel weird and they're going to think I'm silly and I'm going to say what I really want is blank and they're going to judge me. And, and, and so like there's that practice of self-disclosure after meaningful, like self-reflection. And so I think it begins with silence. Then it begins with community. And then there's a cycle there that I think if we're not somehow on purpose practicing those things, uh, we're going to have a difficult time developing that frequency and that duration of connection. And so these are muscles that can be developed of how frequently I'm connected with the Lord in prayer, how long I can connect with him in prayer, and then how long, how frequently I'm uh, being able to allow myself to be appropriately seen by someone else and how long I can maintain that conversation before we end up talking about uh, the Phoenix Suns being disappointing or whatever it is, you know. So yeah. uh, I think that those kind of three, those two movements of intentional reflective time by myself with the Lord and then intentional disclosure and like allowing yourself to be known with someone in some type of iteration, whether it's monthly or quarterly or like in marriage, possibly weekly, where there's this uh, reflect, capture reflections, share reflections that's uh, mutually going both ways. I think that type of practice uh, is key. And I think those a, the capacity to be intimate will develop over time 
And the healthier you get, the more you'll be able to be um, appropriately intimate in, in varying various settings. Yeah. Well, I think we should say too, like depending on your story and your history and your past, relationally with your parents, um, sexual history, sexual abuse history, those kinds of things, you know, I mean, there's a lot of us that are really carrying around some real serious wounds here that, yeah. um, you know, even 40 minutes by ourself is going to make a difference, but it, but we're going to have to really enlist some help with some counseling, with some therapy, maybe, uh, I mean, just some other tools to be able to help us develop some of those connections. Yeah. You know, cause it's like, if I really want to go deep with connections that I don't have, right. They, like, it's like, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm going to, there's a string, but it's broken, right? I can really pull hard at that string, but if it's broken, the connection on the other side isn't going to make a difference, right? Somehow it's got to get healed back up also. So, um, yeah, I mean, all that feels like, like you've been saying, this is all integrated. This is all part of a whole life. This is all part of your whole being. And so that, that is probably going to be a piece of it as well. Yeah. And I think that if you bring in like a clear sense of the obstacles to intimacy to your therapist, they'll actually be more productive. Mm. You know, like if you come to a therapist and go like, and they say, what are your goals? What do you want to work on? You're like, I don't know. I just feel bad. Uh, versus like, I feel cut off from myself. And I just, there's a, there's a deep seething anger. And when I try to interrogate it, I don't really get anywhere. Could you help me figure that out? Yeah. Like you're kind of getting a jumpstart on the process. And sure. so I think that beginning with like, this absence of stimulation away from screens or away from music, away from time. Uh, I think that unless you get that therapy will actually be pretty unproductive. Mm. I mean, it can, I mean, let me rephrase that. It will be way less productive yeah. than otherwise would be. Uh, it could be still productive, but apart from the absence of external stimulant, mm -hmm. you're going to, still be cut off from yourself, even if a therapist gives you tools, because all the therapist is going to be able to do is give you tools to then go and be by yourself. And so they'll, they'll enrich that time. But if you don't carve out that time and space in the first place, yeah, uh, like a therapist will all tell you, like, this is only going to be as productive as you make it. You have to go do the work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh therapists are not like personal trainers who like you do all the work in the meeting. You can do some of the work in the meeting, mm -hmm. but it ends up being like, you have to go out and, apply it and live it and walk it and do it. And so I would, like you said, if you hit a roadblock and get stuck and feel cut off and you like, you can't get through, like there's a wall up in yourself and you can't make it past it. Then a therapist could be a great ally in that. Yeah. Well, Seth, um, any concluding encouragements or thoughts here? You were designed for intimacy. God made you connect a bull to be connected to him, to be connected to others, to be really known. To, And that fear of being known is, I think, one of the main symptoms of the fall. Adam and Eve hide. That's their first thing. They cover themselves up. And the hiding from God and the hiding from other people is, you read Genesis 3, one of the first symptoms of the fall. And so uh, we shouldn't feel ashamed of our hiding because it's common to humanity and it's part of the symptoms of sin. Uh, but we should name it and find the places where we're hiding, find the places where we're cut off, where we don't have the frequency, we don't have the duration, and do our best to uh, appropriately unhide, mm -hmm. to be truly seen by God, seen by our closest friends, our spouses, that that unhiding is a constant battle. 
because it's so human nature to just keep covering up. Yeah, it, it makes me think of that <clears throat> that old confession, right? What's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God. How do you glorify God? By knowing him and enjoying him forever, right? It is mostly that relational connection that's we're after with God. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Yeah, that Hebrew euphemism, most time it says like Adam knew his wife Eve and mm-hmm. they had a son. Like there's something there on knowledge, sexuality, that's very connected. And uh, self-knowledge, others' knowledge, self-giving, receiving, these are all part of yeah. part of it. And I don't think the psychotherapists are wrong in saying that like sexual intimacy is the above-the-line floating piece of ice. Um, but I think they're incomplete because I think that uh, our prayer life is a more, it's a, probably a harsh diagnostic well, but part of what I like for it, even like for this audience, like there's a bunch of people that listen to this that aren't married and shouldn't be having sex. And if they're going to try to be faithful to the Lord in that process, and the only way for them to discern about their overall intimacy is through sex, well, then they I got a problem. But if I go, well, okay, let's talk about prayer. <laughs> now you can grow in intimacy and you can actually be, uh, you know, fully the way that God's intending you to be and you don't need to have sex and you don't need to be married and you don't, you know, you can live a life of intimacy even as a single person. And that just feels really important. And even just noticing those trends, like we, I think we've all probably had experiences of people who would call like our uh, oversharers, you know, like, hi, I just met you. And then let me tell you all of my trauma. It's like, like a trauma dumping is a term that's popularized now. Uh, you call it like emotional immodesty, like showing too much of yourself emotionally rather than showing too much of yourself physically. And there's this connection to, am I able to discern the right amounts of self-disclosure in the right spaces? Uh, or am I premature? Like That's like premarital sex, right? Am, am I being too intimate without the right context? Yeah. Just like, am I posting all my emotional rants on Facebook? You know, I'm being too intimate in the wrong context. And, and so uh, context is a big marker for intimacy. And safety and space is a big discerner of that. And that's part of the reason why I think the Christian sexual ethic is so uh, clear or even harsh, or I'd say like not permissive on premarital sex is going like, this is not the right space for this type of intimacy. Yeah. Like there ought to be legal financial protections for that intimacy. Like it, it shouldn't just be tossed around. And so uh, just like emotional intimacy, there's a reason why therapists are like such highly, highly regulated spaces like HIPAA just like dominates the process and so much of uh, going to a counseling school is like uh, ethics on disclosure it's because the proper protections need to be in place for types of intimacy and and so it's safety protection and, and those all go hand in hand well thanks for uh, helping us think about this this has uh, been good and uh, everybody thanks for listening and uh, I think that's it so we'll see you next time uh, peace peace <laughs>